Everybody, welcome to Bible study. Glad you're here. Gonna take a few moments and pray and ask God to bless our time, anoint our time, empower our time, so that uh, we can hear and receive all that God has for us tonight. So Jesus, thanks for your presence. We thank you, God, for being here in our midst. We ask you, God, that we would be open uh, our hearts, our minds. Our spirit would be open to receive what you want to say tonight. I ask you, God, that you would challenge ideas in us. I ask you, God, that you would confirm things in us. I pray, God, that uh, tonight would be a time of learning, of new revelation, new understanding. I just pray that, as we've gathered, we would leave here with more. Uh, more of you more understanding of you, more of a knowledge of you, more of a knowledge of your ways, your will, how you go about things in the world that we live in. I just pray, God, that we would grow and we'd learn and that we would continue to become the people that you want us to be. So God, tonight, I pray you move by your Holy Spirit. I pray you anoint your Word. I pray, God, anointing in me to communicate what you want to say simply and understandably. I ask you, God, that this be a time of receiving of you. We give you honor, we give you praise, and we give you thanks. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open up to 1 Kings. Uh, If you need a Bible, there's some located on the tables around the room. If you're a particular table, if you're in a chair, you don't have one, you can feel free to get on up and grab one off the table. Or you can turn to the electronic Bible of your choice. Digital Word on your mobile device. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi. Or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. 1 Kings chapter 19. I need a volunteer willing and able to read verse 21. Left him and 
went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. All right. So what you see here is a decisive moment in the life of Elisha. Elijah the prophet, who was well known by this time, had called Elisha. Uh, He felt like God said, this is the guy. And he approached him and he said, this is the deal. And Elisha responded to that call. And the way that he responded was very decisively, as you read in this verse. The reason I picked this verse is because it's it's just a really clear and decisive verse about the way that Elisha responded. In other words, Elijah came to him and he said, all right, well, this is what's going to happen. And this is what I'm calling you to. And Elisha responded to that. And and you can read what he did there, but he went ahead and he had been using and plowing with some oxen in a field. So he slaughtered the oxen. He took the plow that he was using, made of wood, that was being pulled by the oxen that he was plowing the field with, he busted that up, set it on fire, and cooked the oxen over it, and then had a feast to say goodbye. All right, now, do you understand how decisive that was? All right, we're going to look at it a little more in detail, but I wanted to start it off just by saying that he, he made his decision. And I think it's interesting that Elisha was called to minister to Elijah. That's how that worked. And, and that's how it often works that when we receive a call in ministry, it often works that we end up, and it's God's purpose and plan, that we learn how to serve someone. And while that's not always the greatest of um, opportunities as far as our minds are concerned, it's a great opportunity as far as the way God works is concerned. Uh, I can remember when I was called, I was called to serve. I was at a university, but we were all part of a ministry affiliated with a local church. And so, as I answered the call, part of the answer to the call that I had was that I went to the local church. I went to the pastor, and I said, "Hey, um, I want to serve here. What do you have for me to do?" Now, most of you've heard this story. It gets worse in this story. I just tell this part of it because I don't want to sound like a whiner. But uh, first thing, you know, he had me do. He's like, he just he looked in his desk and he pulled out a paint scraper. He's like, here, go scrape the paint off the building next door and prime it, and we're gonna get ready to paint it. I'm like, all right, you know, because I was thinking maybe a Sunday school Bible study, something. Yeah, well, it was a two-story house. That he had me, he wanted me to scrape it, and it was in terrible shape. I mean, the paint was just coming off, and like I said, it was two stories. It was a pretty big house. It used to be the parsonage, and uh, it had been turned into the Christian Ed uh, building at some point. And so uh, I went over there and just started scraping, and uh, got a ladder and whatever needed to happen, and that was my first job. And so it got worse than that. Um, I served in a lot of capacities at that church uh, before I ever taught anything. Uh, I, I, I was a painter, scraper. Um, I served as the church janitor for a number of years. Uh, even after I 
was taken on staff at the church and was a part of uh, what, you know, Sunday school and and uh, all the other things that I used to do there, youth pastor and whatever, uh, I was church janitor. And so even when I was on break from college, there was nobody else to do it. Now, I lived almost two hours away. And there were some times where I was on a motorcycle uh, when I was first started at the church. I didn't have a car. And so I, that sounds okay, right, in July? Not okay in December, though, uh, or November when I'd have to go home on break but need to be back to clean the church on Saturday before Sunday. And then in December, I was going back and forth every week from where I was living to the church so that I'd make sure I could clean it on Saturdays to make sure it was ready for Sunday. Those are some cold trips. And, um, and so that was just part of it. It was part of it for years. I did that for years. And literally years I did that. And um, that, so that was another thing. I had to make the church bulletin. And back then, uh, a Xerox machine, like a copier, that was, a, that was really a luxury back then. Uh, we used a mimeograph machine. And if you don't know what that is, don't, don't even think about it. It's terrible. It was a terrible thing. And it, because you, you, had to, you had to type it with a typewriter, and it was like a plastic sheet. And so if you made a mistake, there was this little plastic stuff that you could put over it, like white out, but it was for plastic. And you could erase the thing that you typed and then type it in and all that. So now you had to make sure that you were editing as you went because once you took it off, you could never line it up again. And you had to get it out of the typewriter, stick it onto the machine, and if you ran a copy of it and read it and you proofread it and there was a mistake on it, you had to start all over again. All right? That's just the nature of what it was. So I did that for a while. I, I did just, just a bunch of stuff that I did, but I learned to serve. And, and that's just a part of ministry. You know, the word ministry, what does that mean? It means to serve. We're going to serve. I'm going to be a minister. What is a minister? A servant. And so, New Testament, Old Testament, however you want to look at it, part of what it is to be a leader is to be, and to know what it is to be a servant. You become a servant before you become a leader, if you're going to be any good. And so, Elisha answered a call, and the call was to serve Elijah. And you see that in other places, in the scriptures. Now, you think about Moses. Moses had a servant. Who was Moses' servant? Anybody know? Joshua. Joshua was the servant of Moses. And so when Moses died, who took over for Moses? Joshua. Now, Elisha then had a servant, Gehazi. And you read on later on, and Gehazi followed him around and as the Bible says in kind of its way of saying things, washed his hands for him. So Elisha washed the hands of Elijah. Joshua washed the hands of Moses. Gehazi washed the hands of Elisha. So it was kind of a, the way it happened. So New Testament-wise, somebody look quick at um, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 and verse 5. 
Okay, so there's a okay. That's early church, the apostles going out to preach, and you get this guy. His name John. There he is. What was his job? He was the helper. All right. Okay. Nothing wrong with being the helper, because there'd come a day that John wouldn't be the helper anymore, and he'd be the one preaching, and he'd be the one teaching, and he'd be the one laying down doctrine, and be a miracle worker, and all the rest of those things. So. What I want you to see is that this isn't just something unique to the Old Testament. It's not unique to Old Testament prophets. It's not unique to anything like that. I mean, this is something that's carried on into the New Testament. And it's something that I believe is a normal, everyday part of what it is to give your ministry away. It's how we train people. It's how we give our lives to people and how they then can take it on and go with it. So, now notice Elisha, Elijah. There were schools of the prophets back then. Elisha wasn't in the school of the prophets. He wasn't. He, he wasn't like, he, he didn't go to the prophet school. Um, in fact, he, he was just uh, out in the field. He was plowing when God said, he was out just doing farm work when God said. He was going about taking care of his family and going about the business of his family when God said. And so, I think it's interesting that God still says what God says no matter how many schools of the prophets you want to you know, fire up or how many places you want to have people to go for that and all the rest of that stuff. God says when God says. And He calls who He calls. And never think that you are exempt from any call of God because you're not at the right school or something, or you don't have the right credential, or you don't have the right thing backing you up, or that you think you need. It's interesting that the longer I'm in ministry, the less I I really even understand a lot of that stuff. When I first got into ministry, I was in college, and I didn't know anything about it. I was studying for a degree, and that's what I understood. You get a degree, and then you're qualified for a job, and you go get the job. So I was called into ministry, and I took the first step, and I went and talked to the pastor. I said, hey, you know, what can I do? He told me, here, go paint, scrub the paint or whatever. Make the bulletin. You're the church janitor. Congratulations. Whatever he said. All right? And I went about doing that. But I, I, was, I was concerned because... I was in that mindset. It's like, well, I'm going to school to become whatever I was going to school to become. Well, how do you become this? How do you become a pastor? How do you become a minister? So, you know, I went about doing that. And so I went to and I received uh, credentials and a Bible school education and all the rest of the stuff that I went through in order to qualify myself for the ministry. Well, come to find out, years later, looking back, uh, I think scraping the side of the, the house next to the church qualified me more than all the other stuff I did. Alright? And, and I mean that. I'm not just saying that. I didn't say, oh, that sounds good. That'll sound good on the playback. No. Now, it really, I, I really believe that. I believe that the, the time I spent serving and, and, and sacrificing or riding in freezing my butt off on a motorcycle to get back so I could clean and, 
and then drive back the same day and all the rest of that stuff that I had to do or that I, I chose to do because I chose to answer a call qualified me and prepared me more than the book work I ever did. I just believe that. And I still believe that. I'm not saying there's not good things to learn in books. I like books. I like them. And I like the things that I learned in those courses. And I, I think the knowledge has helped me over the years. I do believe that. I don't think it qualified me, though. I believe I learned a lot of stuff that, that I've used in sermons and teachings and I've used to speak into people's lives. I think that's happened, sure. But I don't think it qualified me any. So, I, we, we learn to serve by serving. And if that's what we're going to call ourselves and we're going to minister to others, that means we're going to serve others. And so, if you're going to be a servant, you need to know how to serve. And all of these guys that... I mean, Elijah and, and Elisha, Moses and Joshua, Elisha and Gehazi, you got the apostles and those that went with them. Because eventually somebody else has got to do it. And that's the only way I know to pass it on. The only way I know to pass it on is to do it together. And, and for people to learn how to serve and learn how to move forward together. And so, Elisha wasn't in the school of the prophets. There was a school of the prophets. He just wasn't in it. Maybe they didn't want him in the school of the prophets. If you read about Elijah, you see kind of a weird guy. And I mean that respectfully, but he was kind of a weird guy. And then you look at Elisha, who came after him. Elisha was a weird guy too. And, and I mean that respectfully, he was, but he's just weird. And I think you have to be a little bit weird to do what they did. I think you had to be a little bit weird to go and stand up to the king and the queen. I think you had to be a little bit weird to stand up to 400 prophets of Baal. I think you had to be a little bit weird to command an axe head to float. I think you got to be a little bit weird to do a lot of the things these guys did. And, and God used them mightily to do those things. But, I mean, Elisha, he's just going about his business when Elijah came around. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't looking, oh, I want to be the next prophet of Israel. And he hadn't aligned his life to, to accomplish that. He was just going about his field work. He was just going about being a farmer. You know, he was out in the field. He wasn't reading. No. He wasn't praying. No. He was plowing. That's what he was doing. He was plowing. Not reading, not praying, not doing anything particularly spiritual. No, he was just going about his business. Now, who does this remind you of? Anybody? Yeah, it reminds, it reminds you of a, well, a number of people in the Bible, but you can learn lessons from every one of them. I immediately thought of Jesus going around calling the disciples. What were the disciples engaged in? Or whatever they were doing, right? What was uh, Levi the tax collector doing? He was collecting taxes, so that's what he did. Right. And and the fishermen were fishing. Yep. And and likely the zealot was being zealous. Alright? And whatever they were doing, I mean, they were just going about their lives. They, 
there was no, there was no, you know, call out, oh, Jesus needs disciples, who wants to apply? There was no application. They were just going about their lives and going about their business. And, and so that, that's what Elijah, Elisha was doing when Elijah came along. And, and so, and so until Elisha answered that call, was moved on by the Holy Spirit, he was just going about his business. I mean, what was David doing when Samuel was looking for a king? What was he doing? He was out shepherding, right? In fact, his dad forgot. He was out there. He just didn't cross the night. He was just out in the field with his sheep doing his thing. He wasn't, he wasn't particularly reading or he wasn't particularly praying or he wasn't particularly worshiping or anything else. He was, he was tending to his sheep. Just like Elisha wasn't particularly doing any of those things. He was just plowing. Just like Andrew and Peter weren't doing any of those things. They were actually just out fishing. And Matthew wasn't doing that. He was, he was grubbing taxes from people. Because that's what he did. And so, they're just going about their lives. Now, I know that that doesn't seem particularly spiritual, does it? Good. Good. Because I think sometimes we want to make everything seem particularly spiritual when our lives, it, it's not about that. You know, we, we bring the Spirit. Alright? We bring the Spirit into the everyday. That's why it's supernatural. Alright? But that has to happen as, as God does it. You know, we're so sometimes superstitious and, and so religious sometimes. We want to see something that's not there. And it's just not there here in this, in this particular story. Elisha, it's just not there. He wasn't some secret, super spiritual guy. He was a farmer. And it was this farmer that God said, this will be the next prophet of Israel. It was this farmer that Elijah went to and said, serve me. And he did. So what was his response? And this is what we're looking at here. He says that um, he said he went and, and he sacrificed his oxen. Well, he, he sacrificed two. And there were more than two. If you read the story. So he sacrificed the best that he had. So he sacrificed the two best, the pair of oxen that... And, and I want you to realize too that when I say sacrifice, there was no altar. Right? This wasn't like it was, you know, like, like at Bethel or somewhere where there was an altar. There was no altar there. He, did, he killed them. He killed them. And so it wasn't a religious sacrifice. What kind of a sacrifice was it? It was a personal sacrifice. It was him just saying, I'm done with this part of my life. And I've got these great oxen that I've been using to plow the fields. And I've got this great oxen that I've been using to, to, to make a living or to supply for my family or however it was going on. And I got to but I don't need them anymore. And so he killed them. And, and again, this wasn't particularly religious. This wasn't particularly spiritual. There was no altar involved. There was no priest involved. It was Elisha. And he killed those oxen the best that he had because he was thankful, thankful for his call. 
And he was expressing that thanks through giving of these oxen. Now, you've heard me talk a lot about this, and I'm beginning to write some things down about this, but I have a real fascination with a primitive faith. And by primitive faith, I mean going way back to between like the time that Adam was around and Noah, and then maybe some time after that. But you really look at that, and that's when Job was written, and you look at the, the way people lived and how they responded to God. Well, there was no law. Even the patriarchs, you look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the law didn't come till later, All right, in a real sense. And so they responded to God from their hearts. They responded to God with their lives in, in a spiritual way. I mean, they went about living their lives and they, they, they listened and they heard what God said. And Abraham responded to God in faith and that was counted to him as righteousness. So faith played an important part of that and it was a personal faith. It was something that was in him, something that he responded to God with. And you look at how did he respond? Well, he got up and he left his home and he went where God told him to go. That's what he did. He did what God told him to do. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. But he was responsive to what God wanted to do in and through his life. And you look at the patriarchs, whether the the very early patriarchs or you look at the later patriarchs and the ones that came after Abraham, There was a primitive faith. There was a primitive response to what God was saying. And you see a similar thing in the early church. That the the rules hadn't been written yet. It was before the rules. And you you see the rules kind of being written with the letters that were going out, mainly from Paul. But before those letters went out, and I mean there was probably a good 70 years in there, they had to figure stuff out. Well, there's something dynamic and powerful about figuring stuff out. I like it. I like it because it's something real. And people are going to make mistakes. And people are going to learn from those mistakes. And there's going to be surprises along the way, really good surprises along the way too. And that's just all part of growing and learning and becoming. And it's how we do things. It's one thing to do something because you really feel it. It's another thing to do something because you're told to. Or that's the pattern we follow. It's one thing to respond to God in a certain way because that's how you want to respond. That's what comes right out of you when it's time to respond. It's another thing, oh, you know, this is the way we do it. That's what I was told to do. Those are two different things. And, and I believe that we need to have that response. We need to have that, that thing happen. I mean, when, when Jesus called those, those fishermen, He's like, come and follow Me, I'll make you fishers of men. The Bible says they threw down their nets and they followed Him. Didn't need Him anymore. And so they went after Him, but that was their response. You know, so if He had called 70 fishermen, those first two that He called threw down their, their nets and followed Him. By the time you got to 70, let's say He called 70, they would throw down their nets and follow Him. Why? Because that's what you're supposed to do. Well, that's not really a response anymore. If you get what I'm saying. And so, Elisha, he he didn't go make sacrifice on an altar somewhere because that was prescribed in the law. That's not what he did. You follow? 
He could have, because he was thankful for his call, he could have went and taken and, and made sacrifice and brought it to the priest and done the wave offering and done everything else because there were thank offerings that were made Okay, at that time. It could be made at the temple or it could be made somewhere. He could have done that, but he didn't. No, he sacrificed his oxen. In other words, he killed his oxen out of, in response to what had just happened in his life. He was really thankful. He was thankful for his call. And he was completely and totally at the same time relinquishing his means of self-support. In other words, he was killing his backup plan. There's no backup plan. That was it. And so the backup plan was done. I mean, you say, well, he still had his plows. Well, we haven't got to that part yet. But what good is the plow if you don't have the oxen? Can't pull it. The locomotion's gone. It's like having a car without a motor. Back then. So the locomotion would be gone. So unless you're going to Fred Flintstone your car, it's done. And so he killed those oxen. He relinquished his means of self-support. The backup plan was gone. But the killing of the oxen was just, it was a, it was Thanksgiving. It was him just saying, yeah, man, I, Elijah came, he called, I'm answering the call, I'm going to go be his servant. And that was it, and he went to be his servant. And then you look at the same time, I said he still had his plow, well, then he busted up his plow and burned that too. Just in case there's any you know, thought, well, he still had his plow. Nope. He took the plow, he busted that up, and he burned that also. Why? So he could cook the meat, of course, from the oxen that he had slain. So he kills off his oxen, and then he takes the plows, busts them up, sets them on fire, and that way, that way, he could cook the meat. No time being wasted. No time being wasted. It's just how it's being done. Somebody look at Second Samuel uh, twenty-four, twenty-two. Second Samuel twenty-four twenty-two. Aronah said to David, "Let my lord the king take up whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood." All right. And so, again. You see a similar situation. You got David on the threshing floor of Arana, and he's going to make a sacrifice. Well, what's he going to use for the sacrifice? Whatever's there. No time wasted. We're going to kill the beasts that are here. We're going to bust up the wood that's here. We're going to set it on fire, and we're going to cook what we're killing right here. That's exactly what he did. And so Elisha cook the meat, make the feast. It's a farewell feast for servants, workers, friends, neighbors, whoever wanted to come. No time to waste. Why? Because he's going to go be Elijah's servant. And so he takes everything he has. He takes his means of support. takes the means he's been using to support the household, support the family, do whatever he's doing. He takes all those means 
And he used them to create and to make a feast to say goodbye. Servants, workers, friends, neighbors. Now we get a contrast to this in Matthew 8.21. Somebody want to read that? This is somebody Jesus is calling. Matthew 8.21. Yeah. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. Now, what did he mean by that? Was his father just, he just died the day before and they got to have the funeral? No. What he meant by that was, I need to go home and I need to wait for my father to pass away. However long that would take. Years? Who knows? And once that, once my father passes away and everything is settled, then I'll come and follow you. In other words, the inheritance is settled. The family is settled. Who's taking over what is settled. Everything is settled. Once it's settled, then I'll come and follow you. Contrast that with Elisha. I'm just going to burn everything i got and I'm gone. Goodbye. So what about his inheritance? He left it. What about his place in the family? He left it. What about all the stuff that he had coming to him for all his years of work? He left it. He left it. And you see the contrast there. You see the contrast between his response and the response of that disciple that you see in Matthew chapter 8. And there is a contrast to those things. And that was not lost on Jesus. Jesus understood that. Jesus knew the story of Elisha and Elijah. He knew the story of Joshua and Moses. He knows. He knows. And so when this disciple says, yeah, well, let me go do this first. Yeah, well, you're not really serious about it, are you? And that was really the way he responded. You're not really serious about it. And so there he went, burning everything, having a feast, goodbye, ready to go. The Bible says he gave the meat away. That's, that's saying he had a feast. That's what it says. He joyfully, willingly forsook his life to serve God. Well, Andy, don't you think that's a little extreme? I guess. I mean, just because something seems extreme to you doesn't mean it's not biblical. Just because something seems extreme to you doesn't mean it's not God. Do you really think God would have somebody do that? Uh, yeah, I do. Actually, He did. Yep. Do you really think God would do something like that? I mean, come on. Yeah, He does. And that's what He does. And so I could sit here and say, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, well, what he really means here is, no, I'm not going to say that. What he really means is what he says. What he really calls us to is what he calls us to. And if this was like one thing in the Bible, it's one time this happened, or one time you see this kind of response to the call of God on somebody's life, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, maybe it was a one-time deal. It's not a one-time deal. It's over and over and over again. It just keeps happening. It just keeps happening that people forsake their lives. It just keeps happening that people forsake their stuff. It just keeps happening that people are forsaking their inheritance or they're forsaking whatever it is they're forsaking. Willingly forsaking their lives to serve God. It just keeps happening. You see it through the Old Testament and you see it through the New Testament. Over and over and over again. 
Every disciple had to forsake his life in order to follow after Jesus. Every one of them. They had to love, they had to not love their lives even to death. And that's what most of them did. So, for me to say, oh, well, that seems extreme. Well, maybe it is extreme. Doesn't mean it's not God. It doesn't mean it's not biblical. It doesn't mean it's not written right there. And so, Old Testament, New Testament, however you want to see it, this is what you see. A joyful, willing forsaking of life in order to serve God. And if you don't feel like you can do it, then don't. But don't put down anybody that does. And don't hinder anybody that does. Because I mean, that's not for us to hinder. I long for the days when people just were minding their own business. My business with God isn't necessarily your business with God. What God calls me to isn't necessarily what He calls you to. Now, there are some things that would be similar. If you want to talk about evangelism, you want to talk about disciple-making, you want to talk about teaching and stuff like that, baptizing, some of those things would be similar. But there's specifics to my call and there's specifics to my relationship with Christ that are not specific to you. That's Okay. You got your thing with him, and I got my thing with him. I'll help you with your thing. I'll encourage you with your thing. But I'm not going to make it my business to hinder you in your thing with God. I think somehow, some way, it'd be better for a millstone to be tied around my neck or for me to be thrown into the ocean than to do that. So I'll help you in any way I can, but I'm going to mind my business. Otherwise, I got enough trouble with sinking in water. I don't need a millstone. Those who would teach, I'm specifically speaking to us in the time that we live in New Testament time. Those of us who would teach must take time to learn. Those of us that would rule must take time to serve. Jesus said that he who would be first among you, talking to his disciples, would be least of all. And you think about some of the, one of the things Jesus did right before he, he was crucified. He washed his disciples' feet. That was the lowliest of all jobs. He had to be like the lowest ranking servant to, to pull that duty. And yet Jesus went around to each one of his disciples and washed their feet. And he had all authority in heaven and earth. And yet he was the greatest servant. He made himself the least. So Elisha follows Elijah. And Elisha was a master in his house. I mean, he had servants. He had family there. He had servants. He was well respected. People listened to him. He directed things. He showed people how to do things. He gave orders. He planned. And so he became, he was a master in his home and in his town, but he 
killed his oxen, he burned his plow, he said goodbye to that, and the master became a servant. So this man who was well respected, and this man who wielded a certain amount of power and a certain amount of authority, was willing to become the servant of Elijah. In fact, he was happily known as, and willing to be known as, the from even when he was the prophet of God, right? And even even when he was the one, the guy in the land, Elisha, that that the kings would ask. That he would stand before kings. He would stand in courtyards of kings. He would stand in throne rooms. He would speak the word of God over rulers. Even when he became known as the prophet of God, he was happily known as the one who had poured water on the hands of Elijah. Even to that day. Because you see, that's who he became. He became that servant. And he was the one that pursued after Elijah when Elijah was going to be taken up into heaven and asked him for the firstborn son's portion. And Elijah said, yeah, if you see me being taken up into heaven, you can have it. And so he, he, and he kept testing him. He's like, okay, well, wait here. No, I'm not going to wait here. Well, st- you know, stand over there. No, I'm not going to stand over there. Elisha was saying. And so when it came right down to it and Elijah was taken up, that Elisha was there and he saw it and he received the inheritance of the firstborn son and he received the mantle from Elijah. In other words, his wrap he received from him. And and I can only imagine, I, I see this scene, and you can look it up in the Scriptures if you want, but I see this scene after he receives the mantle and he's got the double portion, the firstborn son's portion. And he comes back and it says that he just slaps the water with that mantle and the water parts and he walks across. When you think about that, it's like, yeah? Yeah. And even though he did that and the, the miracles, you know, for Elisha, there were, there were twice as many miracles recorded in the Bible that Elisha did than Elijah did. doesn't mean he did more, it just means there were more recorded. Right, and and you think about that and the power. You think about the influence. You think about the authority. You think about the the position that he had. You think about all of those things. And no matter what came his way, he was still happily known as the one who had poured water in the hands of Elijah, because that's who he was. And there's something about that that we really need to take hold of in our lives to embrace in our own lives is that even as the guy and he became the guy he was still the servant somebody look at 2nd Kings 2nd Kings 3.11 2nd Kings 3.11 
An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Bethat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. So that's his qualification, okay? <laughs> that's his identification. Now this is the king. I mean, these are kings, right? And, and they're sitting there they're like, yeah, we need to make a decision, uh, inquiring of the Lord. Uh, isn't there somebody that we could talk to? Well, there's this guy. He poured water on the hands of Elijah. Oh, he'll do. Okay. All right. He did a lot more than that. He did. He did a lot more than that. He is a miracle worker. A powerful miracle worker, raising the dead, performing signs, wonders, miracles, speaking the word of God. But who is he known as? The guy who poured water on the hands of Elijah. He's okay with that. I think it's a good thing. So I want you to think about some practical things, practical ways this should be manifesting in our life. Okay, we're where we are. We're in this time, this place. We're in a different time, different place. And yet there's a couple things that are constant that don't seem to change very much. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So He's a constant. And the other thing that doesn't really change very much are people. I know we want to believe they do, but they really don't. We don't really change too much. You look at the passions and you look at the, the issues and you look at the stuff that these people are facing in their lives and you see a lot of similarities to things that we face. You look at the, Paul's letters to the churches, the New Testament churches, and things that they were involved in and things that they were concerned about. Now, we don't have a lot of food sacrificed to idols, but we have our own issues, right? And we're still fighting those issues. There, there's people judging people. There's people accepting people, rejecting people. There's people that give certain honor to people and not honor to other people. People that prefer some people over other people. All those kind of issues. Well, those are natural human issues. And, and they were all addressed by Paul to his letter to the churches. Or by James to his letter to the churches. Or by Peter to his letters to the churches. Because people haven't changed that much. People get jealous. Yep. You know that? People get angry. People are bitter. People are still frustrated. People are still scared. Yeah, it's true. People are faithful. People are unfaithful. That's true. People are power hungry. Did you know that? It's still true. They were then. That's all still true. People fall in love just like they did then. Yeah. People hate each other just like they did then. People try to rule over other people just like they did then. People are greedy just like they were then. Some people are very giving just like they were then too. So, you look at some of the basic things of life. Now, I know they didn't have cell phones and stuff, but, I mean, you look at really what it is to be human, and we haven't really changed all that much. I mean, you may have been brought up where 
somebody told you that you're to believe in this new utopia of people and how you know people are changing and evolving and they're becoming and all the rest of that stuff. Yeah, that just leads to mental illness because people aren't really changing and evolving like that. It's not really happening. And so, you know, if if if, if people want to believe that, you know, they're gonna, but their reality is gonna crack at some point because people aren't really like that. But they like they they are like they were in the Bible. They are like they were in the New Testament and the Old Testament. I mean. That's because that's human beings, and that's who we are, and that's how that works. And so, you look at this, as like, so what does this say to us? Well, it speaks to us of a spiritual order that we need to find ourselves in. That there's a spiritual order to the way that, the way that God does things. And just like there was a spiritual order way back then, there's a spiritual order now. Just like there was a spiritual order in the New Testament, there's a spiritual order now. We need to find ourselves in it. And I don't mean to beat a dead horse because I, I, I you know, I would, I would sit here and assume everybody got this, but I know you didn't. And so I want to just, just say some things plainly that we need to find ourselves in the spiritual order somehow. And that may mean for us to readjust some of the things that we think are really important because they're not. And we need to let go of some things that we... We're unwilling to let go of right this second, but we need to pray about that. And there may be some things we just need to leave behind. It's kind of hard to live in faith when um, you don't need faith. If you're never in a place where faith is possible, then how would you live in faith? You know, a few weeks ago, I was talking to you about putting yourself into practice, like giving yourself opportunities to practice the supernatural. Do you remember this at all? And I used an example. I was talking about some disgusting green algae. You remember this? Yeah, it's because I got two kinds of disgusting green algae that I uh, put into a shake in the mornings. And there was one of them that was almost out. It was running out. And I thought, well, I should order some. But I told you that what I was going to do is I was going to wait. I was going to rob myself of any widow's oil provision when it came to disgusting green algae that comes out of that container. So I was just going to keep going with it and see how long it would last. You remember how long ago this was? How many weeks, do you think? It was a long time ago, right? Every day since I said that, I stick a spoon into that container and green algae comes out of it and I put it into my shake. It's still going, even now. The other container of green algae is now getting empty, however. So I got one container, I put the same amount in both, into my drink every morning. The one is emptying out and the other one is apparently empty, but I still get algae out of it every day. It's still going. And I wanted to bring that up, not to say, oh, I'm awesome. I wanted to bring that up to say that we need to put ourselves in situations where we experience the supernatural. Where we practice the supernatural. Just what I was telling you weeks ago when I said that. That we need to keep putting ourselves into those situations so that we can learn, we can live, we can allow the Holy Spirit to teach us in the everyday things of life what it is to be and what it is to bring the supernatural wherever we go and whatever we do. And I'm not talking about a religious experience. 
I'm talking about a practical, supernatural experience. Even if it involves disgusting green algae. Now, it would be cooler if it was olive oil. I know it would have matched the story. It's not olive oil, though. But it is something that I use every single day. And so, I'm going to keep going. And there will probably come a day, and I'm not, I'm not proclaiming this, I'm not proclaiming this, but there'll probably come a day where no more green algae will come out of there. Alright? And I'm not going to be disappointed one bit. Not one bit. Because I've seen God supply, and I've, I've seen God move, and I've seen the, the, miraculous, the green miraculous, and I'm happy. And I'll be happy tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. About that, I'll just tell you, they'll be happy about that. And it wasn't through an incantation, it wasn't through uh, performing some spiritual act that I could put my finger on, you know, it's not from clapping my hands three times, it's not, it's not from repeat after me and saying special words or nothing, nothing. I didn't even pray about it. It wasn't from me fasting, it wasn't from me just... You know, somehow saying the right prayer in the right moment or anything like that. I was just putting myself in a situation. God, supply. Thanks. He does. So, how do we learn? We learn by doing. How do you learn to be a servant? You need to serve. If you're going to be a leader, you got to serve first. And in your leader, what are you doing when you lead? Servant. <laughs> There's no job in the kingdom where you're not serving. It just doesn't happen. And so, if we're going to be any good at anything that God wants us to be, we're going to have to serve. And, and for some of us, like Elijah and Elisha and the ones that came after them, it means stepping away a lot of times from things that might be our quote-unquote safety net in order to live by faith. But even if, if that, maybe you've done that, maybe if you've done that, still putting ourselves in, in a place where faith is possible, still putting ourselves in situations where supernatural is happening around us, even in the small things. Because I guarantee you, if you're faithful in the small things, what's he going to do? He's going to make you ruler over many. Alright? Over much. Because that's the principle of the kingdom. So Elisha started off right, man. Kill two, burn the plow, have a feast, goodbye. And forever he would be known as the one who washed, poured water on the hands of Elijah. And everything else he did, but that's pretty much the key to it. Alright. Hopefully you got that. I hope. Let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, just the examples we have in the Scriptures of what it means to serve and what a privilege it is to serve. I pray, God, that if we need some kind of an adjustment of attitude, perception, the way we see things, the way we understand things, I pray that 
it would be adjusted. For God, I I ask you that um, we would not carry or try to carry the values of this world into the kingdom because they don't work. They just don't work. God, I pray that you would teach us, teach us your values. Values that we see throughout the Scriptures. Values that we see in, in the Old Testament. Values we see in the New Testament. Values that we know are yours from the beginning to the end. And I pray, God, that we can really major on that. If we could step out of the religious or the ceremonial and really step into stuff that matters and stuff you care about, that's what I pray can happen in our lives and it will happen in our lives. Pray, God, that you teach us what you care about. You teach us what's on your heart. You teach us about what matters to you. And I pray that we can receive that. Thanks, Lord. Have your way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know. He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the comunidad. Yeah, see, a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.